Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners Podcast. I'm Rob Fields, a Chief Population Health Officer at Mount Sinai. Um, and I have a friend and community colleague, Shoshana Brown, with us and her wife, Katie Ender, joining us. And we're going to, we don't have a super solid agenda, but just a general theme that we want to talk about today around how how we've experienced uh, equity in communities and how systems like ours, as we all represent different kinds of systems, how we approach it. But I, I'm excited about the conversation. And But I, I want to first turn it over to Shoshana and Katie to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about what their interest in the work. Sure. So I'm Shoshana Brown, CEO of AirNYC. And I've been leading AirNYC for over a decade now. Um, and we are a community-based organization headquartered in the South Bronx, working citywide to help families, vulnerable families in New York, uh, better manage their chronic conditions and uh, try to improve health outcomes um, across a, a number of different fronts. Um, and I'm here today with one of my favorite people, my wife, <laughs> Katie Ender. That's a good um, thing to say. So hi, Katie. Phew. You introduce yourself. Phew. I'm Katie Ender. I'm a pediatric hematologist in New York City. Um, I am at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, um, but we see patients also at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx and Harlem Hospital, in addition to Washington Heights. Um, I've been doing this for more than 15 years. My particular interest is sickle cell disease, although... Mm -hmm. Um, I see patients with with every kind of benign sure. hematologic condition. Um, some other interests of mine are ethics, bioethics, um, related to patient care and also clinical research, um, and teaching medical trainees at every level. Awesome. And I think we we ended up on the conversation today out of, out of maybe some initially discussions Shoshana, you and I have been having about our work together and how we think about communities and, and equity in communities. And then when we, the three of us got together talking and you had commented, uh, maybe that's where we should start about the book that Katie wants to write someday. Maybe that's a good place to start. Actually, Katie, you want to talk a little bit about the future book? Yes. Or, or you're giving away like future trademarks or something? Right. No, I think <laughs> write it before I do. They, they, if that person deserves to write it. I know that the... the what the book we're talking about, when I was a fellow in pediatric hematology and oncology, I saw that a lot of people would run marathons raising money for leukemia and lymphoma. Right. Um, and it and it came to me when I was seeing a patient in the hospital once, a teenage patient, and he said, I feel like I'm running a marathon every day. And it occurred to me, nobody's running marathons for sickle cell disease. Right. And, and th that might now be wrong. And there may be people who do sign up for marathons to raise money for a sickle cell foundation. But it, but it's, it struck me that there's, there are disparities on so many levels, including, mm -hmm. but not at all limited to how we raise money. What are the resources for how we take care of um, patients with different medical conditions and sickle cell disease is an interesting one because, because the gene which causes it comes from mostly not exclusively, but a part of Africa such that most people affected by it, a huge majority are of African descent, African-American, right. African-Caribbean, African-Hispanic. And so it is, it, it's not a say black disease, people like to say, but it affects, it overlaps certainly with right. race and ethnicity, this medical condition. And so it, yeah. it, it's a, so looking at disparity and how it affects sickle cell disease is related to, you know, how, how, yeah. um, 
race and other say social drivers of health impact health as well as how health impacts those social factors. Right. How do you see it affecting even building out of programs or departments? Um, It is, I I imagine that plays into it too. Right. Well, and, and well, some, some data I meant to bring to this conversation was related to how, how raised dollars for say research um, Mm -hmm. is different between um, a disease like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell um, and probably separates a little bit on race. I, it, it, there, there has to have been disparate investment in care related to disparities in, in how different populations of patients are understood, I guess, by the institutions and the caregivers. It's, I mean, it's also true that in all the institutions with which I'm currently affiliated, there's been great effort to um, to do better, you know, to do better, to take as good of care as every patient. Of course. What the, you know, yeah. what the disease or, or where they come from. Right. Do patients talk about sickle cell from the lens of race and ethnicity openly like that? I mean, it, does that does that come from patients in the same way? I mean, it, it, as far as I know, no. And although years ago, a, a colleague of mine in, um, who's on the pain service, pain management team, had a hypothesis that there's some secrecy around sickle cell disease because there's some there's a fear of stigma and there's also a fear of a misunderstanding that, that, that people may not know the difference between, say, a contagious disease and a genetic disease. Oh, and right, so, sure. So, I mean, we didn't really get to look at it in an organized or, or like right. evidence-based way, but that, but, but I think that a lot of us have had an anecdotal experience that's, that many people affected by sickle cell disease don't share it necessarily with their communities, their friends, their schools, um, and it's not clear why. I have heard almost the opposite of what you're saying, where, where some people, it, 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 it seems important to some people to say this is not a black disease. And, and I, and I, and, and one way I understand that is it might be because of this historical kind of under um, like underfunding or under attention to it. And is that, um, is that a assertion from within certain groups so that maybe the, hoping the world will care more if it's not just a, say a, a black disease, which, which it's not. I, I mean, I think, looking at how race informs um, the impact of the disease and how we care for it is important to look at. But I mean, that's, it's, it's such an interesting point because if that, if that aspect of it is not helpful, if if it doesn't feel useful to the people most affected by it, then is it, then why are we paying attention to it? Right. Except that if we are not, if we need to be taking better care, but I, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Well, it reminds me of, you know, when HIV was, or mm-hmm. AIDS in this country was mostly affecting, you know, white men yeah. and white men with privilege who organized and, you know, through ACT UP and other movements, the world paid attention in a different way from right. when HIV became more of, you know, a, a disease of the developing world or a disease of, of Africa. Um, 
and other places where black and brown people live. And I mean, mobilization of resources happen really differently uh, depending on how we define the populations affected. Um, right. right. Yeah. Like it was good in Greenwich Village and not good in. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, absolutely. One of the things that we all sort of commented on when we spoke earlier was about uh, probably a lot of the wrong ways. Certainly the large institutions try to handle equity in, in terms of we know what's best. And I think you guys in particular landed on the idea of of humility in, in this work and how we approach communities to work on equity. And I wonder either Shoshana or Katie, either of you wanted to comment on that. Sure, I can I can certainly comment on that. Um, so my background is in public health and um, in business to a certain extent. And um, one of the things that um, has frustrated me with kind of general public health communications and and prioritization, the way we design program, um, the way we think about education or health education is that um, we can be very prescriptive. Um, and I mean, I think, this is kind of known and recognized in the medical community, but it's also true in public health. Um, and uh, we make a lot of assumptions about um, the way people make choices, um, what choices they have, um, what will help people change behaviors. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to look um, to kind of behavioral economics and thinking about how other disciplines um, approach these questions and then try to think about um, communicating with people, connecting with people um, from a place where they can hear what we want to say. Um, and, you know, working in the in the city health department and in other kind of NGOs and community based organizations, the first thing that a lot of us do is, is we think about like, well, what are the if we just educate people, if we give them flyers and if we have a health fair and if we, you know, if we um, make a, a certain banner with a certain message that, you know, people will change. Be, all they need is the information. Right. And um, and, that, and that's not true, no matter what language or culture we're, we're working in. I think that, um, you know, when I when I worked in, in West Africa as a community health worker myself, one of the first things we learned was, you know, don't don't rush to to act. Don't don't move to action before you've really studied and listened um, and heard from the people you're ostensibly trying to help, um, from the intended beneficiaries of whatever your intervention is. So that's something that we uh, you know try to keep front of mind in all of our work at RNYC. It, you know, we say we meet people where they are, and now most people in healthcare say that as well. So it's right. it's rendered you know somewhat meaningless, but you know. <laughs> Prior to COVID, when we were <laughs> when we were doing home visit, you know, we were meeting people in their kitchens or in their apartments right. or in the shelter where they lived, and like literally meeting people literally where they meeting, are, <laughs> where they where they are, and metaphysically as well as physically. Um, but we've brought that forward in our in our virtual work that we've been doing since COVID, and I think it has everything to do with the way. I mean, the way we see, listen, take take someone in, um, and and you know right. we work in all these different languages. But no matter what language you're working in, or you know what neighborhood, I mean, we try to train up our team and practice ourselves. Um, you know, more in the school of thought of sort of motivational interviewing. Like, what does this person want to say? What what barrier are they perceiving to whatever sort of goal or outcome we're trying to set together? Um, and and how do we 
like move somewhere together to think about a problem or a solution differently um, rather than being sort of heavy handed prescriptive and coming at somebody with the information, which may be great information, but a person has to be ready to receive and or, um, you know, take in that information. Um, and that requires, I mean, that requires some level of, uh, of patience. I mean, and uh, in, in time, which I mean, I think to all your points, isn't always taken. I, I'm thinking, you know, Katie, I'm with you. I, I think about our institution, a big, you know, institution as well. I think for the most part, super well-intentioned, as you said, you know, we're trying to provide the best care possible. But I think on the community level in general, there are always exceptions. And, and I have really amazing colleagues that do a really great job. But as an institution, we're really terrible at it. Like we're really bad about going into communities and taking that time but also well-intentioned. And I, I guess I'm curious if you guys have reflections on, you know, why is it, why the mismatch? I mean, is it pure arrogance? Is it, is that the thing that, you know, big academic health centers have or, or big corporations? Because it's not just the health centers, it's corporations, it's everybody. Or what, what's that about? Because people I mean, I try to do the right thing, I guess. Right. And to a certain extent, it's like we, we, we have shorthand ways that we, we make snap judgments and sometimes for efficiency reasons, you know, we have too many patients to see, I would imagine, or too, too many data fields to fill in, in the electronic health record or too much, whatever it is, can, can those kind of um, hindrances get in the way of maybe seeing the person or, or, you know, understanding what they're bringing um, and what they're missing and what they want to do. But I, I'm sure Katie, you have thoughts on this. Right. Well, I, mean, I agree with both of you. I think, Rob, like you said, it, it requires a patience, which requires the resources, which require, you know, whoever yeah. the caregiver is has to have the bandwidth to exercise that patience. I, I mean, so it, it, might, it might be arrogance a little bit, too, or one of these that theme of knowing a little bit can be dangerous. And so the best intention, I guess I thought you said you use the term best intentions and, and, and like what we're learning about racism and anti-racism, right. the intentions it, it, it may not be as, are not as important as the impact. So, so the, right. the, 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 the perpetrator of the omission or the wrong may have had good intentions, but if the impact is misses the mark, then that's that's what we need to care about as well. And yeah, I, so I think sometimes this is how we got to talk about humility is the arrogance can um, be unrecognized because we had this idea for so long of cultural competence. This is something we talk about a lot, and we talk about it in medical medical education, but also for Shoshana, like, you know, how to train and prepare her team to be out in the field, and, and so. Yeah. There certainly is value for all of us in trying to learn about where people come from, what might be true in, in that person's culture of origin. But we, even if we've educated ourselves a little, it doesn't mean where we are competent enough to imagine right. or to, then we're at risk of making assumptions. And so right. the, the humility as the contrast to the competence is we shouldn't be striving for competence. We could never attain it. Attain, you know, maybe right. we come from a cultural, you know, we, yeah. I don't know what you're up against. And, um, and so, so we have to remain humble and curious in addition to patient and, 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 and not guess 
not not even certainly not assume, but maybe not even try to guess what somebody's barriers are. We have to ask them whether on the individual level and on the community level, what are the obstacles? What are your strengths? What are your resources? What 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 do you need, or what do you think is the problem? Problem and 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 make a therapeutic alliance in which the patients or the community is is the most important person, which is probably hard for medical people and institutions. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. It's just not how physicians or the health system is wired uh, as a rule, right? To think that way. But I imagine you have to you have to think that way and you have to teach your students all of those elements that you just described taking care of an illness that is so um you know predominant in one race like you know it's overwhelmingly right it's hard to separate you can all you can almost like separate even though it's probably not appropriate you can separate you know hypertension from race or diabetes from race in lots of ways because it affects affects so many different people and because of that maybe you know, I, I think there's probably a reasonable sense to your point at the beginning of the podcast that it gets a lot of research, it, it dollars, it, it gets a lot of intervention. But in this situation, you're taking care of folks that are predominantly of, of one race. And, and because of that, I imagine the cultural competence piece, or at least education and, um, and uh, you know, the using that same word, the humility to try to at least meet people where they are is even more important in that situation. And and if that's true, how do you address that with your students and residents? Well, right. And and also remembering that it if say, looking only at sickle cell disease and saying the vast majority of people affected come from distant or recent African descent, mm-hmm. still there's great variability among, you know, between, among, within. Right. Um, and the experience of a person from the Dominican Republic in Washington Heights is different from a person okay. straight from Burkina Faso in Harlem. And so with the students, I, I try to remind them all the time, be curious, ask, don't be afraid. This is not, it's not about being polite. It's not a social visit. We have to ask the questions. It, it's nothing's too nosy or too personal if it helps us learn something that will help us help this person. And so, so I, I try to, I, I, I encourage them, keep asking that, keep asking the question, don't be afraid. If you, if you make an assumption, you lose the opportunity to, to understand what, what might really be happening. And you've also spoken about, I mean, people with sickle cell are often in a lot of pain and have pain crises from what I've learned. Um, and I think that's so fraught in terms of how you manage it right. and uh, the questions about, about that come up. Of course. And pain is a subject. Our experience of pain is subjective, not describable, not measurable. Right. And, and then, and now, and there's an opioid crisis, which has made right. practitioners very cautious about prescribing. Absolutely. Medication. That, that that I think people still need. And so right. so our patients may be suffering because we've become afraid to prescribe medication. Right. Because there is misuse in a minority there. Yeah. And and, and I'm I'm sh- racism surely informs um how how patients are treated in pain. And I think I think there's data. Oh, about I'm sure there's yeah white children who have a broken leg receive right. medicine differently and more quickly than Right. Black children with a sickle cell. I, I wanted to get your take on how this lands for you. I, I've been also thinking about our 
you know, strategy around value-based care and pop health, obviously that's my job. That's what I do, but from the equity lens and then, and I keep on thinking like if the, and I've said this phrase probably in meetings together, so I'm not really sure, but where I think if the moral argument had been enough, we would have done it already, you know, that, that sort of concept. And, and I've actually said this in our leadership team meetings with our CEO and others, as we're talking about this stuff. And, and so I've started to change my language actually about saying it's now strategically important because it like the, the, the moral argument stuff ends up pushing it to like a community benefit. Like it's a nice to do, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's, if it's not strategically important, I just don't think it like captures corporate, like in the hearts of corporate culture. And this is not to, you know, uh, degrade and, you know, any big corporate executive anywhere or large institutions, it just, there, there's a lot going on. And if it's not front of mind and strategically important, it, it just gets deprioritized because there's always some emergency somewhere to deal with. Um, it's not a, it's not a personal thing. Um, and so I've, I've been changing it. And so thinking about, for example, our racial and ethnic mix among our full risk Medicaid lives, well, there, there's absolutely a, a racial and ethnic component to that in terms of the in terms of the distribution of white blacks and hispanics in particular as the, as the largest groups among our payer mix that that's real and so thinking that all right if we allow inequities and differential and outcomes to persist we will not be successful in pop health so therefore we must like change our operations to promote equity and get to uh equal and and like across the board, better outcomes, right? In order to be successful in this, in the, and I'm wondering how that lands for you guys. Is is it sound? Uh, because then the the flip side is that then you get accused of doing it for the money, which that's fine. If it gets us to the right outcome, that that's fine. I'll take that accusation. But I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on that. If if that seems like the wrong way to approach it, just yeah, from your perspectives. I, I mean, my my personal kind of journey and you know viewpoint is is that i also set myself up to be willing to be criticized that way i mean i went to business school um right uh, in in part because i wanted to make the case um that you know there's a business case for social justice for social change and you know whether or not i would have articulated way back then that um you know, value-based care is the market argument for that. Um, you know, that I, I didn't have that sort of crystal ball, but I think that if you think about um, community health workers or, you know, what NYC does, we, we are essentially like part of the solution for health, for, for clinicians taking risk. And that's how our sort of partnership makes sense right. um, between NYC and say Mount Sinai Health Partners. Uh, because you won't be able to deliver a, cl- a, a, a clinical outcome, a medical outcome, without addressing those social drivers. Right. So it it legitimizes the business case for the work that community health workers are doing. And right. you know, how we how I got into this work may have been um, from the sort of you know, tikkun olam wanting to you know repair the world and and work yeah. for social justice. But I've I think I've always been. Um, also, you know, c- combining that with practical or pragmatic or just strategic thinking, because I I want to do this work at scale, um, and I think we can. And I think there, you know, the similar arguments have been made for diversity and inclusion. You know, teams are 
more effective when you right. have diversity and you're, you're incorporating different perspectives. Um, so I, I'm with you, Rob. I, I think we have an opportunity here. Um, and that was well before the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic yeah. has highlighted in some ways the connectivity, the interconnectedness among all of us. And yeah. you know, our economy in New York City and in the United States is not going to recover if we are not helping everybody um, get through this. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. We we discussed this a little bit prior to today, but um, this is an audio only podcast, but these are three white people here all approaching healthcare in different ways and who have, um, you know, an inherent motivation to work on equity in health, in, in healthcare, but in, in health, right. And in, in getting to the outcomes that people need to get to and to your I'm, I'm tying it back a little bit, Katie, to something you said about the students and not willing, being willing to ask the questions. And I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, to, to be frank, I, I get it. I remember being a medical student and a less experienced clinician and being afraid to ask questions about race or ethnicity because it, it seemed offensive to ask. Um, similarly about sexuality, fill in the blank, any sensitive topic, right? It's, it's probably the single biggest thing that medical students, maybe new generation, I'm, I'm old enough, or maybe the new generation of medical students are a little easier with those conversations. But I know it's a common theme in our class, in our classmates being careful or cautious about asking some of those questions early on. And, and I'm wondering if, are you still seeing some of that? I'm not as exposed to early career medical students as you might be. And is that still the same way? And how do you, other than being curious, uh, is that taught in med school in a different way? It, it seems to me that the 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 current medical students have had a lot more learning already, or um, whether they are the the learners or the teachers about implicit bias and um, racism and um, microaggressions, much more. They've been more immersed in in these discussions about race and how do we look at difficult topics and how do we approach them as groups? I think they have, they have some experience, especially who are coming straight out of recent say college or graduate schools. So I think they're better equipped in some ways to embrace the conversation, but still when it's, when it's that very intimate relationship of being part of the medical team with this enormous privilege and responsibility of getting to getting to ask somebody about, you know, their health, their wellness, their family, getting to touch somebody's body, possibly see the inside of a body part. Like it's, it's very intimate. And so I think it's right. a privilege that they step into consciously, you know, whether it's because things like race and um, sexuality and gender are scary, or it's also, it's just like, it's such an intimate privilege right. to, to try to take on um, addressing someone's like wellness or unwellness. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, was, go ahead. I was going to, yeah, I mean, sometimes, um, you know, in working with the teens, it sounds like you all are asking questions. I mean, maybe as members of LGBTQI uh, and other communities, we maybe we have, you know, individual sort of sensitivity to these things, but it seems like the way you ask teens about their sex lives is different from probably the way we were asked those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think te- right teens and with social media, the the patients also are a little more comfortable being asked, you know, do, do, whatever. Do you like boys or girls or both or neither? Yeah. 
support men or women. You know, I think yeah. there, there's a younger generation who's more comfortable. More comfortable with it. Yeah. Right. Like just asking, you know, how do you identify? I and mean, that's part of the, I think, on the, the humility palette of, you know, asking the person to self-identify and not assuming what they are and what their preferences are. And Yeah. I, I you know, thinking about also about being trying to do this as a white man uh in trying to work on social determinants all the stuff that shoshana you and i worked on on these projects and and other stuff that we're doing one of the things i've actually i've learned a, a ton in the various conversations over the last year and a half or so about how, how to think about this but I, I remember talking to dr gary butts i don't know if you know him from sinai yes. and talking to Gary one time about using data. Like, you know, one of the things we're like, let's, let's get our data together. Let's figure out how we're assessing race and ethnicity among our clinical outcomes, right? And was starting to ask the question of him, like, you know, is this right? Like, are we, you know, are we doing this correctly, essentially? You know, is what was, and, and I remember his response, which was really powerful for me. It's like, Rob, I don't have any idea. You know, I, you know, I, Yes, I am a black man, but I do not have all the answers about how to fix racism. It's not really my problem. It's your problem to, right. to address and fix, right? And and I think when I was reflecting about our conversation the other day about perhaps the, I don't know if the right word is awkwardness or perhaps hesitancy to even talk about equity in this conversation today, reflecting on those comments over the last 48 hours since we last spoke about you know, yeah, it's it's kind of it's us. We we need to address it. It's our issue to address and. And it sort of maybe gave me a little bit of, of peace, I guess, about like having this conversation with you guys and thinking about it. Hey, we, we got to think about these problems collectively. It's not, you know, it, it's not for someone else to fix. We we need to we need to be participants, active participants, right, in in addressing it. I don't know if you guys think about that differently here. No, in fact, it reminded me of something that, that we just recently like reset out loud to each other, which is. Um, in terms of say social determinants of health or social drivers of health, it's it's not race that is a determinant. It is racism. Right. It is racism that's the yeah, problem. That's a really not, good point. So that's one thing that occurred to me while you were talking. I also I also thought about I'm, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but there's an Audre Lord quote that's that's something like, "I am not free while any woman is in chains, even if her fetters are very different from my own. I am right. not free while any person of color is unfree, and neither is any one of you." And so we're not, you know, if it even if it's our, our as a culture we suffer as a, as a, as individuals and as people, yeah. we none of us is free if if anybody's still being you know beaten down and brutalized and treated unfairly by our oh, system. Absolutely, we're not immune to it. We are, we are, we have to be part of the solution because right. we're all affected by it, even if we're not the direct sufferers or victims of it. Yeah. And and I think I, you know during this year of working in COVID, um, in a way our team is 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 closer than ever. I mean we're we do twice a day huddles where we get together and whether we're case conferencing about the people we're serving or or working on other things. I mean we've been through so much as a country, um, as an organization, as a city this year, and you know I I don't have the same lived experience of poverty, of racism, of other forms of oppression that um, many of, of the community health workers on our team have. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we had so many difficult, you know, kind of, but very powerful moments this year together. 
in all of the vulnerability, like that, you know, me with my sort of white privilege front and center and, um, you know, other members of our team, you know, trying to come together and understand um, difference. And um, it, it, it was clear sort of why I, I do this work, you know, every single day of this pandemic. It was clear before the pandemic, but I think this this year has really been a, a moment where um, I, I sort of doubling down on the mission of NYC of, yeah. you know, addressing these ills of social justice, of health justice, of environmental justice. Um, so it, it, it's um, it's been a privilege and an honor to go through it with this organization. Um you know, through the election, through the violence, through the the sickness, through the despair, um, and and now to be you know emerging and trying to come out the other side and um, and rebuild. So, yeah, I mean, we think about these things all the time, um, aware of you know what what advantages we've had in our education and and the access we've had to um, resources, and I think both feel. Um, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Katie, but I think it's fair to say we both feel, um, you know, really committed to working towards solutions. I mean, yeah. not, you know, not speaking for people. I mean, ideally, you know, the next leader of, of NYC will be a person of color. Um, the, the leaders of, on all of these movements right. um, will be, you know, the best people for the jobs. And, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion, we all have a lot of work to do. Right. Um, but it's good work. It is. Agree. What's the What's the next phase in your respective work streams? I guess in terms of how you're. What's next in terms of your work towards equity and social justice in your in your area? Is there a new new exploration? Is it? I mean, it. it <laughs> I feel in some ways, even though I'm now eleven years plus into the work of Aaron YC, in some ways it feels like early days, like we're just starting to hit a stride and build momentum around this work um, such that people understand it, um, because they become buyers of it. The, the, the role of the community health worker here in the U.S. and in New York City is, is much better sort of understood mm-hmm. um, as, you know, uh, a community health worker can can be a bridge, can be um, someone who shows up for people and helps them get to care, whether it's medical care, um, social care, food, housing, transportation, all of these other factors. Um, and and so, you know, I I guess cynically or sadly, it took a pandemic to to get us yeah. here in some ways or to accelerate the awareness of what we're trying to do. Right. Um, I mean, a next step for me would be to really see this through to scale um, so that, you know, we can sort of get beyond working on a pilot here, a pilot there to, you know, build the evidence base and establish the proof points so that we can um, justify and show the ROI. I mean, I think I'd like to be able to do this work um, with appropriate resources of what it costs to do this work. I'd like to be able to create this career path for people um, from the communities we're trying to reach and help. Um, so that being a community health worker or an analogous worker, a doula, um, you know, is something that people can aspire to, um, that they can feel good about, that they can, you know, earn a living wage from, 
Um, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm just getting started in some ways. Yeah. How about you, Katie? What do you, what's next in your thinking? Um, I mean, the first thing that came to me was what's next for me is to keep doing what I've been doing, which is yeah, keep trying to take better care of patients and keep trying to support our learners at every level and, and, and learning how to do that themselves. Um, a, a, a mod, an interesting model for me is I is I not that long ago got involved with this group that calls itself the Pediatric Diversity and Inclusion Council at Columbia, and it's a group led strongly by residents who you know are doctors. Well, you know this, Rob, but for your listeners, they're not they're no longer in medical school, but they're in their they're in their residency, so they're still trainees and they're not yet fellows. And so the strongest leaders of this organization are the residents, and they are teaching some of us in the faculty and as, as fellows who are who further along in their careers than they are, you know, how how to address some take on some of these important issues within our own, say, Department of Pediatrics. And it's been super important for me to see that we need to keep learning from each other in all directions from, you know, from our different points of experience and our across say across disciplines and across functions and even kind of like in, in all directions even related to our level of experience. So I hope we just keep, keep, keep elevating the keep at it, Yeah. Keep at it and supporting each other and doing it. It's yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you very much, Shoshana and Katie for your time. And, and it was a great conversation and, um, appreciate you doing the work that you do. We appreciate you too, Dr. Fields. Thank you. Thank you. Sure thing. Have a good weekend. You too. If folks are listening and have ideas for future podcasts, podcasts, excuse me, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.